1: Hello and welcome to a new episode in New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Shir Ali Tareen. Today we will be talking with Professor Tina Parohit about her new book, The Aga Khan Case, Religion and Identity in Colonial India. Dr. Tina Parohit is an assistant professor of religion at Boston University. Her book, The Aga Khan Case, Religion and Identity in Colonial India, was published by Harvard University Press in 2012. This book is a wonderfully written and carefully researched work that straddles multiple fields and disciplinary approaches. The central theme that animates this book is that of how colonial power, both discursive and institutional, transforms the normative boundaries and horizons of religious identities. More specifically, the Aga Khan case examines the transformation of Koja Ismaili identity in colonial India. The title of this book refers to a case in 1866, lodged by the Khojas of Bombay against the Aga Khan over the ownership and control of their property. However, this ostensible property dispute spiraled into a much larger debate over religion and religious identity. Through a dazzling analysis of novel historical and textual archives, Professor Parohe demonstrates that the Aga Khan case of 1866 indelibly transformed the nature and boundaries of Ismaili religious identity in South Asia often in ways that remain highly relevant even today. In our conversation, we discussed the major themes and arguments of the book. We also talked about the broader theoretical and conceptual interventions of this book in the fields of religion, Islamic studies, and South Asian studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Tina Perovith. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Today, we will be talking with Professor Tina Perovith, who is a professor of Islamic Studies and Religious Studies, at Boston University, and her new book called The Aga Khan Case, Religion and Identity in Colonial India, published by Harvard University Press in 2012. Hello, Tina, how are you doing?
0: Fine, thank you, Sher Thank you for inviting me here to New Books in Islamic
1: Studies. Well, thank you so much uh, for being here with us and for giving us your time. Uh, so before we get into the nuts and bolts of this very fascinating and well-documented and and careful historicized project about Koja Ismaili identity in colonial India. Uh, Let me begin by asking you uh, and providing our listeners um, some sense of your own biography as an author and scholar of Islam and religion. So if I would ask you, um, how did you come to the study of religion and Islam? If you could tell our listeners some kind of a background about how you became interested in the study of religion and the story Uh, Behind the writing of this book,
0: sure, Um, I came to the study of religion and the study of Islam in a somewhat circuitous circuitous uh, path. I began as an undergraduate. studying classics. So I came to the study of religion actually via philology and classics. I Mm -hmm. studied Greek and Latin and Sanskrit as an undergraduate. And then at the master's level and PhD stage, I continued with Sanskrit but also started taking Hindi and Mm -hmm. Hindi-Urdu and also Gujarati. So I came to the study of Islam first via the study of Indian medieval vernacular devotional Uh literature. Uh and specifically interest in bhakti poets who were influenced by Sufism, more specifically. Uh So I started reading a lot of Kabir and Nanak, and it was at this point that I discovered the Ginans, uh, these poems that are really the subject of this book, which are a body of poems composed in the early modern medieval period in many languages of Western India, Hindi, Urdu, Gujarati, but also Sindhi and Kachi, and these poems became the topic of my dissertation research eventually so that was the literary and religious studies side but as a phd student i was also introduced to south asian history i started taking classes in south asian history and got interested in debates on on historiography and especially the place of islam in south asia so i really came to the study of islam via South Asian history, as well as um, Indian uh, devotional literature, I would say.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. And clearly, when one reads the book, one can see that you straddle many different disciplines and many different textual and historical archives in in, in very adept ways, and that provides our listeners with a good sense of the background of uh, how you were able to do that. Uh, So before we do the specific uh, details of the book, Perhaps we can begin by uh, my asking you about some basic terminology which might be helpful for listeners uh, of this program. Uh, Your book is entitled The Aga Khan Case. So perhaps you could give us some kind of a background about who is uh, the Aga Khan and who are the kojas that you specifically write about? Uh, How are they related? And what is this case that that forms the title of your book? So perhaps some kind of a background on these key uh, terminologies that uh, are central to your projects.
0: Sure, um, and this is kind of this is the real history, the, the background of the history here. Um, I'll be happy to share share that with you. So the book focuses primarily on the story stor- story of the nineteenth century Khodej community of Bombay mm-hmm. and their conflicts with the Aga Khan. So let me start with the Aga Khan. The Aga Khan was a Persian nobleman. Who was attached to the the Qajar court of um, of Persia? You know the dynasty that came into power in the late eighteenth century, and. Um, in the beginning of the early 19th century, the Qajar court was ruled by an absolute monarch called Fateh Ali Shah, who appointed the Aga Khan as governor of two provinces, um, Mahalat and Qom. And at the same time, the Aga Khan was married to the daughter of Fateh Ali Khan. So there was a family alliance that augmented this, these political ties to the Qajar court. So he had a very good relationship with Fateh Ali, with, um, Fateh Ali Shah, but when his successor came to, uh, to power, um, his name is Muhammad Shah. For some reason, and this is not entirely clear in the history so far, um, Aga Khan, the Aga Khan declared a series of rebellions against the Qajar government. Mm-hmm. Um and he, he gathered his own troops and he started to instigate these rebellions, these uprisings in 1837 and 1840. And he actually wrote um, to the British telling them that he was, he, was, he launched these uprisings because of the opp- oppressive nature of the Persian government. Mm-hmm. Now, whatever his actual motivations were, the Aga Khan was branded a political rebel by the Qajar court. Mm-hmm. And so, and then again, it's not so clear how this happened, but he basically began he joined for he joined the british forces and starting in in kandahar he worked for them and he was basically paid to provide strategic and military support and then after kandahar after the british were forced to evacuate Afghanistan in 1842. He arrived to Sindh, where he helped with its annexation. He helped Charles Napier. Then he helped the British in controlling neighboring Balochistan. So you see he was working for them in these different places. Mm -hmm. And then by 1848, his official appointment ended but he remained in India and settled in Bombay. Mm -hmm. So that's 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 the story of how he came to India. So that's one piece of it. And on the other side, you have the kojas. Mm-hmm. And the kojas were a caste. That is, they were a particular social grouping based on ties of endogamy, occupation, language, and religious practices. Mm-hmm. And in the 19th century, there were really just a few hundred families um, in the early 19th century. But by 1866, and this is the date of the big court case, mm-hmm. um, the number had grown about 1400. And Kojas were not native to Bombay. They had been, for the most part, petty farmers and agriculturalists in places like Sin, Gujarat, and Kutch before they moved to Bombay to pursue trade. And over the course of the 19th century, they moved to Bombay where they really flourished economically as a community in the sphere of commerce. And the leaders of the Koja caste of They were known as the Shetias. They were traders by profession, and they were the wealthiest of the coaches, and they exerted much influence um, over Bombay, right? And they also um, had their own congregation, which was called the Jamaat, which actually comes to mean the congregation of adult males that governed the community. And this Jamaat, these meetings would take place at the Jamaat Khana, which is kind of a council hall in which the Jamaat met and made, um, the community's decisions. So the Shethyas were the powerful leaders of the kojas, and they were the directors, they were in charge of the were they, So they were very influential community in Bombay. But they also had a lot of ties with the other communities, like Parsis and Hindu and Jain Banyas and Boras. These merchant groups really controlled most of the wealth of Bombay City. Now, mm-hmm. the Koja Jamaat, they were this community was pretty, it was governed independently, right? They didn't, the colonial government did not really interfere in Kloja affairs. Um, all disputes, et cetera, were taken, mediated within the community. Um, and, you know, whether it was like husband and wife disputes, any marriage, like, you know marriage if any marriage was to take place it had to be consulted with you know within the community within the Jamaat and so all of these issues all the sort of inheritance succession all these issues were de- were determined by the Jamaat the koja leaders mm-hmm. now how did these two groups come into contact with each other the Aga Khan and, and the koja leaders well <clears throat> throughout the early and into the mid nineteenth century the the aga Khan amassed a pretty good, uh, a lot of support from the Koja community. And the reason why he had done this is that because his father was actually um, an object of de- he was he was also a political leader in the Qajar court, but he was also a, considered an imam and an object of devotion and apparently there had been Kojas who had visited him and paid tributes in the past. Now the details of this relationship really remain obscure, but it was apparent that the Aga Khan this Aga Khan who came to India. Mm -hmm. Um, He claimed to succeed his father's role as an object of of reverence. Mm -hmm. And and although the Aga Khan was obviously traveling in all of these different places, he wrote letters to this community in Bombay and sent emissaries to the Koja community. And through these chains of communications, managed to convince a lot of Kojas that his lineage occupied a position in their community's history. Mm-hmm. Right, so he intri- he actually was successful in introducing new religious practices, many of which the kohjas were not familiar with. He required some tri- he required tributes, which many kohjas resented, mm-hmm. and he actually initiated changes in the customs of inherent inheritance, which was actually unsuccessful. And that was actually that was the first court case that happened. It was in 1847, and I don't talk about it as much because. Um, the decision in 1847, when there was this conflict between the Koja leaders and the Aga Khan, the British court, the court, the colonial court basically said, you know, you people, just figure it out yourselves. Let's keep the, mm-hmm. the custom of inheritance as is. Now, in 1866, um, something different happened. Now, the, again, the elite coast, the Koja caste leaders, they opposed his role in the community. So what they did, they filed a suit, and they claimed that the Aga Khan was a, and this dispute was a property dispute. Right, right. And he, and they, 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 they told him, they basically filed a suit saying he needs to be extricated from all caste affairs. And so that's what those, that that property dispute and this claim for authority over the community is what instigated the terms of the Aga Khan case.
1: Well, excellent. Thank you so much for that sure. very detailed um, uh, rendition of uh, the Aga Khan case. So the interesting thing, that thing that I found really fascinating in reading about the Aga Khan case, is that here you have a dispute or a case which is primarily about property. And this property dispute turns into one about religious identity, where you have the colonial state having to decide about the religious identity and the boundaries of that identity of a community. So could you perhaps uh, talk a little about how a case about property dispute turns into one about religious identity?
0: Sure, um, it's really one of the most fascinating pieces of right. the trial, actually. So, as you're you're right, and um, it's it, it this is this is the sort of the strange shift that happened in the trial because the case of 1866 was officially a property dispute. However, in the course of the trial, the presiding judge, Justice Arnold he found it necessary to determine the religious identity of the kojas before he resolved the issue of property ownership. And, you know, this trial went on. Um, when I read the accounts of the, the, the trial, it's it's amazing to see, like, to what extent um, the the judge was so fixated on this question of religious identity, but it wasn't just the judge, right? It was the the framing of, of, of religion by the plaintiffs that, that started all this business about religion. So in order to undermine the Aga Khan's authority and role in the community, the caste, li- the caste leaders filed a case claiming that the property of the Kojas belonged to only members of the Koja caste. And since the Aga Khan was not a Koja, he had no right to intervene in caste and property issues. So the disagreements between the two sides centered specifically on control of caste affairs, property ownership and payment of review and revenues. But despite this, both the plaintiffs and the defense were required to make a case about the religious identity of the Kojas. Justice Arnold was determined to figure out what their religious identity was first, right? And ultimately, he, he sided on the side of the defense, which officially proclaimed that the Kojas and the Aga Khan were Shi'i Ismaili. As part of that decision, he concluded that the property of the Koja caste belonged to the Aga Khan. Now, of course, crucial for my study were two questions. How was this religious identity of the Kojas established, as, as Ismaili? And second, why was it necessary to establish the religious identity in a property dispute? Well, Arnold officially, the interesting part here is that Arnold officially declared the religious identity of the kojas in the final judgment as Ismaili Muslim through an interpretation of poetry. Mm -hmm. So one of the key documents through which the defense argued their case for the koja identity as Ismaili was the text Das Avatar. Now Das Avatar literally means the 10 avatars. It's the poem of the Ginan genre that I talked about earlier. It's a Gujarati Hindi vernacular rendering of the classic Sanskrit story of the Ten Avatars of Vishnu. And this this text was transmitted and finally tr- transcribed in the early 18th century. It was, you know, it was passed on orally for a long time. Now, it was a central document in the trial because both the plaintiffs and the defense described it as the single most important religious text of the kojas. The defense, however, schem- this is the side of the Aga Khan, scheme- schematized the Savitar in such a way to show that the kojas were specifically Ismaili Muslims. So you must remember both sides agree that this the most important text, mm-hmm. but it's about who did the most creative or convincing argument, you know, with it or, or interpreted it most convincingly. Right, and the right. defense they pointed to the fact that they made the argument that look, you have the first nine chapters which narrate stories of Hindu avatars, but the final chapter distinctly focuses on Ali, the first Shi'i Imam and this transition they argued proved that the kojas were hindu converts to ismaili islam mm-hmm. and so this reading was the, the other side the, the plaintiffs could not come they could not counter this argument so justice arnold went with a defense's reading of that Arthar and they just and decided look the kojas were converts to ismaili islam he arrived at this conclusion that this theological and the division the d- division in the text demonstrated the history of kojas as Hindu converts to Ismaili Islam. So this is pretty um, this is pretty wild, because really, at one stroke, he really re- redefined the kojas as converts, and thus and avatar is a conversion text. And so what I illustrate is how the judge's interpretation of Dasavatar divided the poem into two parts, one Hindu, one Muslim, and this reading was utterly novel, right? And because it it demarcated these categories and created a Muslim identity for the kojas. And again, the work of it, the arguments was laid out in the trial, but what Justice Arnold did, he put it together in a narrative in the judgment. Mm -hmm. Mm So
1: that's very, very fascinating. Uh, One of the major points that you you make um, in this book is that this case, the Al-Khan case of 1866, radically altered the way in which Ismaili identity was henceforth imagined. And this Mm. intervention of the colonial state in deciding over what that identity should be and what the boundaries of that identity should be really has uh, henceforth uh, altered the way in which Ismailis uh, uh, imagined their identity. Uh, So Perhaps I could, if I could have you say a bit more about the implications of this case and ways in which this case uh, altered the parameters and the horizons of Ismaili uh, religious identity in the years after this case until today in many ways. What are some yeah. of the ways in which Ismaili identity was altered and transformed as a result of this case?
0: Yeah, um, well, I make the argument that you know the 1866 decision that Kojas were Ismaili Muslim, um, or Muslim, let's say, in this identity, identitarian is the term that I use, sense. This has had lasting repercussions for the self-identification of the Ismaili community. In the early 20th century, the third Aga Khan, Sultan Muhammad Shah, whom, if we get a chance, I guess maybe we'll talk about a little bit later, um, in the interview, he mandated a series of, um, islamicized reforms within the community uh, what I talk about the most in, in the book is the production of an official canon of the of the Gyanans in print and this canon was marked by a series of changes which were such as the discarding of Hindu all kinds of quote Hindu names like Hari and Krishna and the introduction of new Islamic ones so that was one really important phase or change that took place uh, uh, with regard to the Guinans. and today I'll give you just an example sure. the current Aga Khan Prince Karim Aga Khan IV he has further Islamized the Ismaili liturgical setting, changing the language of service from the vernacular Gujarati to Arabic mandating greater use of the Quran and, and most recently um, as of the 70s I believe banning all, quote, Hinduistic ginans, including the Savatar, right? The ginan that was agreed to be the single most important text in the course of the trial, right? Right. Or um, important ginan. So banning it altogether. So that's one piece of it. And again, we can talk about it a little bit more if we get a chance to talk about Sultan Muhammad Shah. But what I'm very interested in in, 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 and what's really informed a lot of um, my own work has been thinking about the the ways in which this 1866 case has set the, has come to set the terms of scholarly discussions about the ginans mm-hmm. so scholar, scholars who work on the ginans for the most part accept the interpretation of the poems as ismaili conversion texts mm-hmm. which from my perspective is is really affirming the 1866 the judge's 1866 outcome and judgment so for example the 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 um, this sort of famous, the well-known Ismaili historian, Ismaili studies historian Farhad Daftari will make a very extensive argument about the Ginans um, and and what they are. He will explain. He has described the Ginans as as conversion texts used by the Nizari Dava in India. Right, note this kind of use of language. So basically, taking the Persian. Um, the Persian history of Ismailism and putting it onto the Indian context. He will say that the what the what the Ginans are are basically the peers' attempts, the peers of the Nizari Dawa, Their attempts to convert um, low classes, the the um, the lower classes. Um, To Ismaili Islam, right, Um, using using Hindu motifs, accommodating indigenous religious mores and concepts that basically won the masses of of converts. So it's so what he does is he assumes two points about the Guinan tradition. First that its origin was Nizari, that is Persian, and that in the context of India, the peers of the Ismaili mission attracted converts by spreading their message through the language of a quote, Hindu ambience. You know, is that the word that he uses. And so from this perspective, the Guinans represent an encounter, From his point of view, an encounter between two separate religious traditions, Hindu and Ismaili. And what I see is that this interpretation divides the Gyanan into two parts and, and really gives primacy to that conversion argument. I mean, it basically replicates without question the exact logic of the legal ruling of the Aga Khan case, mm-hmm. right? So um, – I would say that even the more the most sophisticated works in this studies scholarship treat Hindu elements in the poems as simply facilitating conversion. And um so this is really def. This tradition of scholarship has really defined the frames in which the Guinans are understood, and the prevail. And really, that prevailing assumption that Guinans represent an extension and continuation of Persianism, Ismail- Ismailism. And I'm not saying that this is this is willful or anything like that, act active sure, sure. occlusion. It's just I like to point to the ways in which these arguments about conversion have been shaped and how they really have enduring force, and they preserve this. Persian pedigree, basically, and what I also see is that they really alienate the Indic, the Indic context, right? And it's my what I try to do in 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 the in in my readings is I want I try to argue that the Indic ideas in the Ganans are, are not just part of an ambiance, but they really are the primary conduits of this. Um, of, this, of this, what I'll, I'll describe a little bit later as the Satban tradition of Islam, which is very different than, than, than what's been described as the Ismaili tradition of Islam, and that this, this vernacular that's used is not really a strategy of conversion, but it's really the linguistic medium of this local vernacular Islamic religious form of Islamic religious expression.
1: Excellent. The sathbant being the, the true path, right? Could you just say a couple right. of words? Uh, right. Uh, it's
0: the sathbant being the true path and really the word that's used mm-hmm. to describe um, the, the, the path of Islam in this in these texts, right? It's right. not Ismaili, it's right. not the word. Sathbant is the word. And I really work with this idea to try to figure out what um, the Ginans are all about. Excellent. One of
1: the things which is really... Uh, fascinating about this book is that not only do you walk readers through um, rich textual and historical archives and provide a very multi-layered analysis throughout your book, but you also talk extensively about larger conceptual questions about the study of Islam and religion and and, and South Asia. Um, And so you you write about the politics of the scholarship in addition to this very multi-layered analysis that you provide of your historical and textual sources. And one of the key arguments which I found very interesting that you make is that you uh, are critical of two categories, uh, one being the category of sect and the other being the category of syncretism in the study of Islam and South Asian religions. Uh, What do you find particularly problematic in these categories, sect and syncretism in the study of religion? And uh, in what way do you find them replicating uh, modern colonial conceptions of religion in the contemporary uh, study of Islam, uh, if I could have you say a bit about that.
0: Okay, um, maybe I'll start with sect, and I'll just draw from the book to, to explain sure. my position. Sure, sure. Um, so in the judgment, in the Aga Khan case judgment, the distinction between church and sect, um, I argue, provided the paradigm through which Justice Arnold decided the, came to the conclusion and decided the religious identity of the kojas. So in the classical Western division between church and sect, you have church, which represents a corporate center, and then sects, that, which are groups that break off from that center while retaining certain elements fundamental to the doctrines of the church, right? So this is kind of the Bavarian idea of church and sect. And I, I was, I, my reading of what Arnold thought about church and sect was really along these lines. He identified the kojas as a Muslim sect, and, of course, classifying the Kojas as a sect assumes that there is an equivalent church in Islam. And according to, in the judgment, Arnold makes the point that Sunni Islam was the church and Ismaili Islam was a sect, was the equivalent of, was a sect of the Shia. So what I argue is that, in fact, by mapping the Kojas as as a as, as sect, as, as Ismaili and, and locating them as a sect, the Kojas were put into inserted into a into a classificatory scheme right Uh, placed into an already systemized idea of islam in which let's say the arab or the sunni was world was its center and then internal differences within the tradition were defined through this template of church and sect and the other important point here is that and this goes back to my point about um about identity and what I call identitarianism, just as Arnold's conception of religion was identitarian. And what I mean by that is that he alleged that the Kojas must have, must have a religious identity, right? They must have a religious identity and that they must have a single religious identity. There was no either or or both possible here. And so the kojas could only be Hindu or Muslim. This is what was one of the questions at the beginning of the trial. And if they were Muslim, they must be Sunni or Shi'i. So in this way, these, that this 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 um this this scheme he provided was it was very it had these constraints right in terms of the way kojas were placed, and so of course I try to do something different and explain you know through the through their religious practices in look that we need to think about that it's it, it's very inaccurate to use this term term sect to think about um um about about the Kojas, but actually to go back to your question about the study of Islam, I think that that is really, it's really important because this term has been so completely naturalized. Right. Right. And I really, I tell my students this in all of my, you know, intro courses and, um, and even my Sufism course, that this term sect is really misleading and it is inaccurate because within Islam, we have no, there is no equivalent of church, right? There's no corporate institution. And so, um, we what we do by using this term, we perpetuate the ways in which we we elide these differences. I think between, say, Christianity and Islam, or um, and I give you another example is with Sufism. Right, right. it's so hard to break out of the idea um, that, that that received idea that Sufism is a mystical sect of Islam. Right. Right? right, but if we participate in this logic, we continue to reify and naturalize this dichotomy, these divisions, which really aren't there, right? If those of us who, are, who know, who are very, who understand or, or are sympathetic or want to think about Islam in history and practices, I mean, if we think about the idea of tasawuf instead, we're forced to think about a process, right? If we use that term tasawuf, we're at, okay, pro- a process, a tradition that has always been part and parcel of, of Islam, not some some sect, some break, right? Mm-hmm. And so I have a real problem using this term sect with, within the study of Islam, and I think that the the Ismaili case reveals that that problem um, really quite dramatically.
1: So Tina, let me let, return to the Das Avatar, uh, mm. because it is so crucial to the story of this book. And... You critique the way or show the ambiguities and the contradictions of the way in which British colonial authorities approached this text and read this text in a very identitarian uh, fashion in order to ascribe this very fixed religious identity onto a community, the Ismaili Kojas. Uh, but you don't stop there. You provide an alternative reading. You you also go one step further and make the argument that these texts can be read in very different ways and can be read against what you call the modern judicial archive. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And that, I found a very fast hermeneutical exercise that you conducted in this book about reading these kinds of texts, the Dasavatar specifically, in a way uh, which would counter uh, the modern judicial archive or the British colonial um, uh, manner of reading this or approaching this text. Could you tell us a little more about how you uh, go about uh, presenting and uh, and fashioning this alternative reading of the Dasavatar?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, well, one of the, the the points of entrance where I where I tried to figure out. Um, what 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 is going on with this text, and what is so central to this text, and why what the court has said doesn't make doesn't do justice to it, or why conversion argument the conversion argument doesn't do justice to it? Um, well, where I the, where I enter the, my own analysis is das Avatars' discussion of temporality and messianism. Mm-hmm. And I, I argue that it's really within these two ideas that we see the very complex workings of what I call Satpant Islam, right? So the, the form of Islam articulated by the Ginans. This can be seen in the Savatars, um, um Das Avatar's approach to and discussion of messianism and temporality. So I'll tell you a little bit about the poem. The poem is premised on the belief on the messianic worldview. And what I mean by that, I draw really, um, I, I, I use the work of Abdullah Aziz Sajidina to describe what I'm talking about in terms of imamate messianism, which is this this perspective where the present world on the one hand and life beyond is given meaning and reconciled through the Imamate idea that an expected deliverer is supposed to come and humble or destroy the forces of wickedness and establish rule on earth, right? Mm-hmm. And this is his formulation, Sajidina. So, and I see this at play in the Avatar, where you have what you have is um, a story of good and evil. And the culminating event in the Avatar is uh, this confrontation between good and evil arm- armies that happens. And the protagonist of the story is call is is the 10th of and this figure is Moves between a a a a figure as well as a Vaishnava figure, right? He's described um, as arriving on a white horse with a sword, so very much along the lines of the way Ali Imam is supposed is envisioned, but also the final avatar in the cycle of Hindu Hindu avatars. Um, And this figure, who's often referred to as the Shah, he comes, um, he he arrives, he comes out of hiding, very much in accordance with Shi Mahdi theology, which rests on the idea of an appearance. Right, and he moves out of occultation, and this this confrontation between the good between two armies, good, good and evil, it actually takes place between two spaces, in a place, in what's called an Arab desh, which mm-hmm. is supposedly Arab lands, and then in in and in, in India. Uh-huh. And at the start of the poem, this Shah, this this tenth avatar, resides in the Arab desh, but he actually confronts the demons' army, and the great social transformation that happens it takes place in India. So. And there's a lot of anticipation, and there's this whole description, really beautiful description of the physical and social overturning of order, and, and Shah himself, right, he's getting ready to establish his throne, and the detailed descriptions of his horse and his physical mm-hmm. form, it's, it's all about anticipation. And so, and, you know, and then ultimately, the Shah destroys the, you know, the, 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 the demon, and and, 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 and that's, that slays the entire army, and so that's the end. Mm-hmm. But what, the, one of the points I point to, I, I, I describe it in, in, in the book, is that what's so significant about the account of this is that the closing verses of Dasavatar describe at length what's called the eternal abode, the amrapuri, mm-hmm. that's promised for all the believers. And ultimately, the poem closes by stating that those who follow the words of Dasavatar will be spared from the cycle of reincarnation, samsara, and they will also avoid the fire of the great day, the Mahadeen. And now I make the point here that what is so significant is that we have two ideas of the afterlife. Uh, very much a cyclical idea of death and rebirth, which is very indic and and it's also explained along the lines of karma very extensively in the Savatar. But then you also have this final judgment day, right? And so you have this What I call, and I know arguments can be made that you know Quranic ideas of time are not really linear, but they are linear compared to the cyclical idea of time, you know, of samsara. But so what I point to is that temporality here really is, really is cyclical and linear, and that the simultaneity of Mahadeen and samsara it cannot be made equivalent. Um, through, say, a syncretistic um, approach or even a sectarian understanding of these texts. There's no idea that's given primacy here. We can't say one is more important than the other. And there's really no single definition or process of commensuration that can account for both cyclical and linear ideas of temporality. So what I try to show is that really um, that... That these events in the poem allowed me to make my point that the locality of Islam, the indigenousness of Islam, they can really be read through an engagement with the messianic imaginary of Ismaili religiosity, right? One that was squarely Muslim and squarely Indic, and so and it's con- it's obvious that concepts of temporality in the sabadar cannot be relegated to Justice Arnold's idea of sect, which is premised on the logic of conversion, right? And um, and and really hard. <laughs> Hammering the point that that Dasavatara's definite or sorry Arnold's definition of text of sect effectively situated Avatar as an expression of Persian Islam, and it made Avatar comprehensible within a, within an alien within a, with with something that you know didn't do justice to its its own context and milieu is what I would say.
1: Terrific. And to a theme that you've touched on uh, a bit earlier. Uh, but I want to return to it concerning Sultan Muhammad Shah Al-Khan III. Mm -hmm. You mentioned how uh, this modern uh, Muslim uh, political uh, uh, figure and imam of the Ismaili community in the 20th century, that he went about cleansing Ismaili identity of its Hindu past and the traces Mm -hmm. of uh, Hindu thought and practice uh, in Ismaili um, uh, traditions. Uh, so, could you tell us a bit more about how he went about this this process of, and what were some of the ambiguities or contradictions attached to this operation of trying to purify or cleanse Ismaili identity from its Hindu uh, past?
0: Sure. Um, yeah, I I, I I mentioned it just briefly earlier when we were talking about the legacy of this court case and the changes that were made. Right. Um, and I discussed kind of at length this particular point that one of the the major initiations of Sultan Muhammad Shah was the initiatives he made mandated, let's say, in the direction of canon formation, which was really the first undertaken, um, first time undertaken with with within the Ismaili community itself. Um, and so, this these they were the Ginans were first collect they were collected right um, and um, with for the purpose of producing this canon. Um, and it was Aga Khan III or Sultan Muhammad Shah that really, it actually started, the mandate of the of the second Aga Khan was very short, so really the major, he, Aga Khan the II, this third one, really um, Sultan Muhammad Shah really furthered this process of canon formation. He had this famous publisher he appointed, Lalji Devraj, and Devraj's initiatives included an exhaustive search and compilation of Ginan manuscripts um, and the establishment of the Koja, Sindhi Press, the first community press, and again repeating what I said earlier, and a lot of these changes, that, um, the changes that were made were the discarding of a lot of Hindu names and the assertion of Islamic ones. So the canon, the canon formation, was the one space where this um, this cleansing or purging that you, the word that you used, started. Um, the other would be, I would say, the Farman's which I think were very much um you know really uh the, the, that is the the statements to the community the farmans were this were the the genre let's say through which Sultan Muhammad Shah de, delineated the new terms of ismaili belief and practice when he became imam and so he he told you know so he told the community what to what sort of things to do there's this famous one of the statements that um that he said that that from one of his Farman's is that it's not proper to read Hindu things in your ilm. <laughs> when yeah. you were Hindus at that time, Pierre Sadruddin showed you the way that time is gone. Now recite the praise of Mullah Ali and his progeny, the imams of the time, give up the nine avatars, recite the praise of our forefathers and thus of Moavatar. So he's, you know, give up the nine avatars, right? That's the kind of point there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that point of giving up the nine avatars, discarding the Hindu, that also manifested itself in the changes in the dua. -hmm. In this highly canonical prayer, um, which in many ways parallels what was what he did in with the guinans and the farmans, and and there, um, you know, I, I guess it's really the 1930s and 1940s where a lot of these changes took place. I guess prior to the 1930s, the dua addressed the ten avatars and later after that the avatars were replaced by lists of ismaili imams mm-hmm. so so we see this the same sort of the same sort of move so that's the kind of ritual and liturgical changes along along those lines but he did other things which were mm-hmm. very important in terms of the shaping of the community he he organized reorganized the structure of the Koja community uh, replacing all of those traditional caste positions, right? the way I explained that the Koja it had it would have very involved like caste structure in the Jamaat that was organized around these these particular leaders and um, and he he completely shifted all of that. And he replaced the older structures of the Koja community caste leadership with what were called Ismaili councils. And these councils derived their authority solely from appointment from the by the Aga Khan. And he actually drafted a Shi'i Mami Ismaili constitution in which all members of the Koja Jamaat were obliged to abide by, in which the community issues were resolved. So the constitution was actually, and this is very interesting, it was actually a response to those who decided to um, break from, you know, break from the community. Um, and he, he, he has several statements about this too, about the Farman, in his Farman's about these seceders, these groups who broke. And so it was really to sharpen and kind of make tight the the community identity because it was clearly in flux. There's some actual some really interesting work coming out on on, um, the Koja Ethnashri community and how they had to redefine themselves um, because prior to Sultan Muhammad Shah imam, they were all one. I mean, everybody was sharing the same practices and things like that, but with with the split, they had to make a decision on whether they were going to join the Ismaili kojas or create their own groups. And and so so even within the koja community, so many splits um, arose as a consequence of this, Mm -hmm. these changes.
1: Staying with Sultan Muhammad Shah uh, for a bit, uh, one of the things that you really brilliantly show in your book is a sort of paradox or a tension that you see in the figure of Sultan Muhammad Shah and specifically between his public persona as a Muslim political leader in the 20th century who was a Muslim modernist par excellence in ways in which he was critical of traditional forms of education, of mysticism, and really tried to push for this very modern secular Muslim subjectivity. But on the other hand, when it came to his role as the imam or the leader of his community, uh, he nonetheless went about deifying his own persona and created a very uh, hierarchical system of patronage within the Ismaili community. And there you have even in the way in which he approached certain smiley writings a very enchanted vision of his own position mm-hmm. of his own position uh, within the smiley community while, while he's pushing for a more disenchanted public sphere and so forth mm-hmm. um, and that I found to be a very fascinating tension uh, or paradox that that you that you describe uh, uh, very brilliantly uh, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about this this contradiction or tension between the public and communal, persona or role that that Sultan Muhammad Shah played uh, in the 20th century? And and, uh, what did you find in terms of this this contradiction or tension?
0: Yeah, um, well, what's so interesting is that... um uh,
1: he
0: Sultan Muhammad Shah basically assumed two distinct positions. Um, first, as you said, as a modernist reformer in the public sphere and a Muslim political leader representing a kind of position of pan-Muslim unity. <laughs> and at the same time, he was doing all these things I described um, earlier within the Ismaili community, really enforcing his position as sectarian leader. So that's kind of... Um, that's sort of interesting, just to begin with. But let me just talk a little bit about what he did. Um, his role was really important, actually. He posi- he was he was a he was a reformer, and he really spoke, you know, um, in support of Western education, importance for Muslims to participate in political life, and and he, in many ways he followed in the footsteps of people like Sayyid Ahmed Khan, who campaigned against you know what was called quote Muslim backwardness, and mm-hmm. and um, he and he really um was 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 a, was within that reformist tradition but he also had a you know an interesting role because he took his efforts he, his uh, political efforts in the direction of separatist politics and he played um a really integral role in pushing for the installation of separate electorates for muslims and he was actually the president of the first all india muslim league so that was one kind of role and You know, the way I sort of described it in the book is this sort of, you know, that I mean, you describe it as enchanted and disenchanted. I think that's kind of interesting. Um, And the way I think of it is much more simply as horizontal and vertical. (laughs) And what I mean by that is that this sort of pan-Muslim unity is about putting everybody as equal, bringing all Muslims together. And then this vertical, what I describe as vertical, has to do a little bit more with what you're calling the enchanted, right, as sort of um retaining his position as imam and his status as divine leader within the what i call the private domain he he um he was essentially the ismaili messianic sovereign right and so um in the final chapter of the book i explain the kinds of ch- you know these changes that took place within the sphere of ismaili religious practice but really the most most significant being um that he actually um, was able to... So, for example, one of the um, one of the readings I do of these canonized hymns um, is of a poem called Enthronement Hymn. Mm-hmm. And that actually... Um, it, it, it's a hymn that's recited, you know, in, in praise of the Aga Khans, whatever, whoever the current Aga Khan is. But in the Enthronement Hymn, what you see very clearly is that Muhammad Shah is actually... So this idea of messianism that I was talking about earlier with the avatar, the Quran tradition was very much built on this idea of messianic expectation, right? Waiting for the Imam, and so enthronement him really places Muhammad, Sultan Muhammad Shah as the fulfillment of messianic expectation, right? And that. Um, And so you see these new terms of Ismaili devotion that um, are are brought into line with this idea of Mohammed, with, with Mohammed Shah as the primary object of devotion. And so this kind of reconfiguring that takes place is quite interesting because... You know, it works on the on these older ideas of messianic time, the awaiting, right, the expectation, all of this. But in the poems themselves, especially this poem in particular, you see that there is this sense that now we have a new idea of community, right? That's not based on expectation, but now a sense of fulfillment. Mm -hmm.
1: That's very fascinating. Uh, Let me take a step back from the specifics of the project uh, and uh, ask you about to so the larger positioning or, or the larger conceptual stakes uh, of this project. And let me ask you about this long-running uh, debate or argument or conversation in the field of South Asian studies and also in religious studies more broadly, what we might call the continuity versus rupture debate about okay. the role of colonial modernity and colonialism in the formation of religious identities, whether from pre-modern. To, to colonial India, we find a rupture or a continuity of entities and so forth. And this has been a conversation which has been going on for some time. Uh, so how do you see your book uh, making a contribution to this debate? And uh, if I could put you a bit on the spot, where do you stand? What are your, what are your thoughts on this, on, this, uh, on this ongoing conversation and debate in South Asian studies and religious studies, more broadly speaking?
0: Yeah. Oh oh yeah, it's a very big debate in South Asian studies for sure. And I've I really because I feel like I you know, I've worked on the um on pre modern literature so much and I've been part of those conversations and yet I have been also inducted into, you know, modern South Asian history and those debates, I feel very sympathetic to you know, both kinds of worlds and sets of debates and I, I say both because they seem to be pretty separate at times. And I would say, I mean <laughs> I come down pretty clearly on um, on on the rupture, I guess, because I think right. we see, you know, it's really hard to make a debate about continuity having read my book. But I think the thing, what the book does is unlike mm-hmm. a, a kind of, let, let's say, to be reductive, an invention of tradition argument, my point is not that... A tradition is invented, but um, it def- it's reconfigured, right, um, in new ways. Um, what is invented, what it really is new, or what it, in this case of is- of Ismaili identity is really the legal and political aspect, the legal identity, right? And this is the point I, I'm not sure if I fully emphasized at the beginning, which is that Ismaili was a label, right? It was a legal label designated in the court. And so that that is very unique. I mean, that is very, I mean, there's no getting around the fact that that identity was created in, in this particular moment, right? Mm-hmm. But if we step back and think about just general shifts and changes and ruptures i think we see very clearly that what that 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 the crisis was instigated because of the colonial state in the 19th century and you know but yet it wasn't just that it wasn't just the colonial state so it's not just about you know the colonial invention of tradition it's about what was happening within the community and the very complicated dynamics you know intra-community dynamics and i think that's why i would um I would shift the focus to not so much putting, you know, not, not putting so much on, you know, whether colonialism changed everything, but really, like, look what the sort of changes that were instigated by, by you know, by in the 19th century within, within communities, too. Right? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Um, I hope that answers your
1: question. Oh, absolutely. It's a fascinating, fascinating. Uh, discussion fascinating. in many ways. Uh, so continuing with that, if I could perhaps connect your own positionality as someone. Uh, in, in some ways, it's quite rare that you're able to straddle these different fields of South Asian religions, Islamic studies, and, and, and do so uh, uh, very adeptly. Uh, if I could perhaps connect your own positionality as uh, situated at the boundaries of Islamic studies and South Asian studies with the argument, the larger argument, which is trying to make us think differently about the boundaries of religious identity, of uh, the rupture that you've see in the hardening of religious identities when you have Ismaili Kojas being uh, uh, demarcated as either Hindu or Muslim and so forth. This, this logic of identity, this modern logic of identity in which you're either or. Um, in what ways, this is sort of an open-ended question, what ways do you see your own um, uh, intellectual positioning at the boundaries of these different fields uh, being mapped onto to the larger project and the larger argument that you make about making us think differently about these boundaries and 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 how in, in what ways do you see your own straddling between different fields uh, being reflected in the kind of argument that you're making and the political stakes of your project about making us think differently about uh, modern identities and their and their boundaries and limits and so forth.
0: Yeah, um, you know, it's uh, I guess I haven't thought about that one um, too much, but I think that I can I can say that. I could, you know I you know, I c you know, I'm hired, it's interesting I teach in Islamic studies and uh-huh. I teach in South Asian studies and, and I always feel like, you know, there especially with Islamic studies, there is this sort of a notion of a center in some ways. And uh-huh. and I think that has to do a little bit with, you know, you know, the legacy of Orientalism and how the study of Islam has come to the West and so I think this sort of questioning what what I realized really is this questioning that i that that came about in the in in during the course of in the court case and how the how the were identified as as kojas um, Sorry, as part of Persian Islam, it really ha- it really revealed that kind of bias, this kind of Arab centrism. and this is the This is what I'm. Always, this is what you know. The blurb of my book, for example, is saying, right, or the description right. of my book, it's about trying to get away of an, from an Arab centric Islam. This is the way this community was constituted through the through the court, and this is also what I see myself doing. And by virtue of the fact that I have come to. Islam via South Asia, I feel like I'm also doing that work myself, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think those two things are happening at the same time that right. Um, right. we see the bias, we see the legacy of this bias in the way we understand and we approach Islam, but I also am forced to constantly be doing the work to, un- to undo that because that's the perspective I come to. Had I been trained in, you know, fifth or in Arabic and Persian, I'm not sure if I would have that same this right. same lens that I bring to, to, to this, to this case into this project here. So I think it's very much shaped uh-huh. by my own um, my right. in, my own intellectual, intellectual the argument of the book is very much shaped by my own intellectual
1: trajectory right. Uh, so Tina as we're approaching uh, as we're running out of time thank you so much uh, for the generosity of your time perhaps uh, we can complete this conversation about the uh, projects that you're working on these days what what, what occupies you uh, these days in terms of the work that you're doing. And uh, what are some of the things that we can expect to read from you in the future? So uh, generally, could you tell us about the projects that you're working on uh, right now?
0: Sure. Um, I have a couple of different projects that are hopefully will kind of come together as one big project. One of them is... Um, and, and they tie, both of them tie in some ways, developed from this, this 19th century study of the Ismailis. And one has to do with um, the question of heresy in, in, in modern Islam mm-hmm. and how we understand this problem of, 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 of who's inside and who's outside, right? And I think the Ismailis are really one case, um, which is not as charged as, um, say, some other communities like the Ahmadiyya, um, the Ahmadis, which is one group that I'm working on right now, especially um, I, I, I'm interested in reading the writings of Ghulam Ahmed and especially how he has been declared by many um, in, in the time, not so much the time that he was writing, but a little bit later and certainly in the modern period as heretics, as um, as, you know, As heterodox, part of a heterodox Islam, so I'm interested in thinking about that particular community um, in 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 relations in in relation to the question of heresy. But the larger project I'm thinking about is on um, modernism, Islamic modernism, and Islamic modernist thinking. And I'm struck so much by I'm teaching class on modern Islam how modernists, especially. there are always these standard you know, classical modernists such as you know, Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Rida and Sayyid Ahmed Khan and Muhammad Iqbal. And so we have these standard modernists, but we never think about, say, Sultan Muhammad Shah, who's such an important figure during this period, or Gula, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, also a modernist, right? And so I'm thinking about why are leaders of these, quote, sectarian communities not in the modernist conversations? And so I'm thinking about... Um, Uh, about writing about how modern Islamic modernism is a potentially expansive idea that has been somewhat flattened out and read in terms of um, just, you know, these classical modernists and they're what I call versions of a, quote, Protestant Islam, whereas within their own texts and within their own writings, there's a lot of interesting material that I think hasn't been discussed on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have other figures, other modernists who are in the same period that don't seem to make it into the conversation, and I want to bring them into this larger modernist um, mm. conversation and think about the movement in, in, in new ways, hopefully.
1: Wonderful. So, The Aga Khan Case, Religion and Identity in Colonial India by Tina Parohit, published by Harvard University Press in 2012. Thank you so much, Tina, for your time. It was an absolute pleasure reading your book, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And I'm sure our listeners also appreciate and uh, this uh, conversation and your uh, very articulate and erudite uh, answers uh, uh, to some of the questions posed to you. So thank you so much for your time, uh, and we look forward to reading more of your work in the future.
0: Thank you so much, Sherali, for these fabulous questions and this opportunity uh, with new books in Islamic studies.
1: So this was my conversation with Professor Tina Perohit of Boston University about her recent book, The Aga Khan Case, Religion and Identity in Colonial India, published by Harvard University Press in 2012. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please join us next time also for another conversation in new books in Islamic studies. Until then, thank you, goodbye, and stay well.